There are moments in life when everything comes quickly into perspective. The critical questions of life rush to the forefronts of our hearts and our minds. What matters most in my life? What do I actually believe in? Where does my hope rest? These are the questions that matter most in life. Our church family presently faces one of these moments. We've lost a pillar of faith in our church family. Aaron Gray passed away suddenly this week in the early hours of the morning on Thursday, June 9th. And the sting of death is real. Our beloved friend, elder, husband, and father is gone from our presence here and now, no more to be seen and touched and talked to. The earthly finality of death is a shocking blow and it knocks you down. And it leaves you asking critical questions. What do I really believe in? What do I believe about life and death? Where does my ultimate hope rest? I remember when a pillar of faith in my own biological family, my grandfather passed away just over 11 years ago. Like Aaron, to know my grandfather was to know the love of Jesus. Like Aaron, to know my grandfather was to know the joy of Jesus. It just exuded from his presence. It exuded from Aaron. Wrap his big bear hug around you. It's the love of Christ flowing forth. And I remember my mentor and friend in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, who led my grandfather's memorial service. I remember him stepping into the pulpit and flipping the pages of his Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And he began to deliver the foundational truth about the reality of the resurrection from the dead for all who trust in Christ, the hope of the resurrection for all who trust in Christ. It was life-giving, soul-stirring, spiritual food from God's word. What we all needed that day is what we all need this day, the unshakable hope in the resurrection. Paul says, but in fact, Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Therefore, those who trust in Christ will be raised from the dead. Brothers and sisters, this is the anchor of our hope during this heartbreaking time. But in fact, Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Therefore, those who trust in Christ will too be raised from the dead. Because Christ has been raised, Aaron Gray will be raised in glory. It is an anchor of hope for all who believe in Christ Jesus and it will hold you fast and secure you as you face the reality of your death, which we all do unless Christ comes back before then. It stares us all down. What hope do we have? Hope in Christ. Hope in Christ. Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 
In the Bibles we've provided on your chairs, you can find that on page 961, page 961. And if you're here today and you need a copy of the Bible, we'd love to give you one in the lobby on the bookshelf. You can find uh, several copies, hardback, black Bibles. You're welcome to take those as a gift. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'll begin reading in verse 12, and I'll read through verse 28. The Apostle Paul writes, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of, of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all and all. I want to organize our time in this passage by asking three questions. Three questions, and here's the first one. What are the consequences if there is no resurrection from the dead? What are the consequences if there is no resurrection of the dead. Notice right out of the gates in this passage, the resurrection of the dead is called into question by some in the community there in Corinth. Paul says in verse 12, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? We've got a massive problem here among some in that church in Corinth. Paul has just masterfully outlined the core of the the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11, the passage that immediately precedes what I just read. He summarizes the core content of the gospel in verses 3 and 4. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This core content of the gospel has been received by the Corinthians. Paul says in verse 1, I would remind you, brothers and sisters of the gospel, I preached to you which you received. Gladly, you receive these truths of his death, burial, and resurrection. They believed this gospel. They believed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Paul says in verse 11, so we preached this and so you believed it. But now, as we turn to verse 12 in this chapter, Paul points to a major inconsistency in their belief system, a deficiency in their theology that threatens the integrity of their faith, undermining their faith, their very existence as Christians. Though they acknowledge and believe in the proclaimed message that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, what they are denying is that his followers will one day be raised from the dead. So they weren't denying that Christ arose. They were questioning, though, if those who follow Christ will one day rise from the dead. That's what's at core here. That's what Paul is targeting when he says, some of you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Now, we're not entirely sure where this denial of the future bodily resurrection of believers came from. A couple of thoughts. We see elsewhere in Scripture that some believe the resurrection of the dead has already happened just simply in a spiritual sense. So, for example, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 18, he calls out two men, Hymenaeus and Philemon, who have served, swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. So evidently, some early Christians taught that the resurrection has already happened, and what they meant was a spiritual resurrection has already happened upon a person's conversion. So when they believe in Christ, there is a spiritual resurrection. A person moves from spiritual death to spiritual life, from spiritual darkness to spiritual light. That happens at conversion. And some of these people said, that's it. That's the extent of resurrection. It's just simply in a spiritual sense. But Paul makes clear, yes, it's spiritual at your moment of conversion, but yes, indeed, it is also future and bodily when Christ comes again. So perhaps one source of the denial of the future resurrection of Christians, a second likely source is just the cultural influence of Corinth, the philosophy, the schools of thought, in Corinth, Greek philosophy created this dualism between the spirit and the body, between the spiritual world and the material world. And this great goal of Gnosticism and, and Greek philosophy was to liberate the purity of the soul from the corruption of the body. And so at death, when that separation happens, they would rejoice and they would not look forward to a future bodily inhabiting of the soul. There's this dualism. So it's possible that some in the Corinthian church had been influenced by philosophical trends. In the end, we don't know. All we know is people are doubting and in fact denying future resurrection of Christians. And we know for certain that Paul addresses this disbelief decisively, powerfully. He shows them the grave consequences of their disbelief in the future bodily resurrection of the dead. He connects for them this dismal chain of consequences if there is no resurrection. That, that's how he unfolds this passage, this dismal chain of consequences if there is no resurrection. And then he transitions us to the hope and reality of the consequences because there is a resurrection. 
So let's first look at this dismal chain of consequences if there is no resurrection. He begins, verse 13, this chain of consequences. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. What Paul is saying ever so strongly is if you deny the future bodily resurrection of believers, then you also deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ that has already happened, that people have already witnessed. This leads to the next link in the dismal chain of consequences, verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. If you cut the resurrection out of the gospel, you are left without a gospel. The gospel means good news, and if you excise the resurrection out of it, you empty it of its power, it ceases to be good news at that point. You see, the faith of the Corinthians and the faith of all Christians in all times and in all places is dependent upon the entirety of the gospel, the full-orbed gospel. Christ's substitutionary death on the cross in the place of sinners absorbing God's righteous wrath against us. It happened in history. Christ's physical, bodily burial in a tomb and then on the third day, Christ's physical, bodily resurrection from the grave. These are historical facts. They are realities. It's the core content of the gospel. Jesus was not almost dead and then resuscitated by the cool, damp air of a cave. No, he was absolutely dead and was resurrected by the power of God. And his resurrection conquers sin and its consequence, death. Both spiritual death and physical death conquered through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We become spiritually alive because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And one day we will come physically alive in our resurrection body because of Jesus, the first fruits of the resurrection. Brothers and sisters, we cannot approach the gospel like an a la carte menu, taking what we want, leaving what offends us, taking what we want, leaving what we're questioning, doubtful of. What aspect or element of the gospel do you find far-fetched or perhaps offensive or unnecessary? The fact that you are a sinner and incapable of saving yourselves, you're lost without Christ. I know it is offensive. It confronts us. The scripture says we're all sinners in need of a savior. The fact that God has righteous wrath against you, against me because of our sin, it's offensive. The truth that Christ's heart started pounding again that Sunday morning after it had been stopped, he had died, and by the power of God, he rose. And the fact that you need to surrender your life to this risen Christ. What part of the gospel do you find hard to believe, far-fetched, offensive? You cannot approach the gospel like an a la carte menu. It's all or nothing. You take pieces of it, you undermine it, you empty it of its power. The Christian faith is a house that rests upon a foundation, and the foundation is the full orb gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you begin to tap away at the foundation, the whole house falls down. This is what was going on in this community. They weren't believing the fullness of the gospel. 
specifically the resurrection, and it undermined all of it. That's what Paul's trying to connect them with. Paul continues to add links to this dismal chain of consequences. Verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. Translation, Christians are liars. They're charlatans if Christ has not been raised. We're going around delivering a message that did not happen. Press pause just one moment. So that was Ali Niarco, who is pregnant. She was feeling dizzy and, and lightheaded, was trying to walk to get some fresh air and stumbled a little bit. But she's doing much better. She's in the lobby. And I think the, the uh, paramedics are going to come just to check on her, but she's, she's doing better. Let's pause and pray. Okay. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your, your grace that sustains us in all circumstances. We pray, O oh Lord, for Allie, that you would just comfort her, that you would give her strength. Pray that you protect her and her little one, that you are, even now as we pray, weaving together beautifully, fearfully, wonderfully. We pray that there be nothing wrong, no complication, and she just get refreshed with some water and some cool air. Um, thank you for this congregation, for people in it who um, can help and just encourage. And so we pray now that you would help me as we look to your word um, and apply the very truths that, that we need even now in this hour. God, thank you for the hope that we have in your work, in Jesus' name, amen. So I think I was in verse 15, so I'll read that. Paul says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. And so, if the dead are not raised, what Paul's saying is that Christians are liars. They're charlatans. They're going around propagating a message that did not happen. The gospel is simply, is not simply good advice that we offer somebody with a flimsy hope that it might change their lives. No, the gospel is historical fact, bedrock good news that if heard and believed and trusted, changes lives, changes lives, sustains people. This is the power of the gospel. Paul says in verse 15, if someone can prove that Christ was not raised from the dead, Christians are found to be liars, false witnesses, misrepresenting God and deceiving his people. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. You see, the assuring proof that Jesus Christ's death was an acceptable sacrifice before God is the reality of the resurrection. It's the proof that God accepted Christ's sacrifice is the resurrection. It's a receipt of payment we know what it is to go and, and make a purchase. What are, you, what are you given? A proof of purchase, a receipt. That's what the resurrection is. It's the proof that Christ purchased us from sin, the proof that the penalty has been paid in full, the confirmation that we are no longer in our sins. The resurrection is the receipt, the proof of acceptable payment. But if Christ has not been raised, you're still in your sins, Paul says in verse, verse 17. If he has not been raised, the penalty has not been paid, we're still in a predicament. And Christians who've already died have no hope of new life. Paul spells this out. Verse 18, then, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If Christ has not been raised, then death still reigns. Death wins. Christians have no hope of eternal life. Those who've fallen asleep, which was this figure of speech in the early church for, for death, 
well, then they're forever lost, never to live again. This is the dismal, logical consequence, chain of consequences, if there is no resurrection. That's what Paul's helping these folks see who are denying the reality of the resurrection. But, praise God, this is not how the story goes, as Paul continues. He takes us soaring in the hope that we have because Christ has been raised. So he takes you on this dismal chain of consequences if there is no resurrection, and now we soar, take a turn, and see the hope of the resurrection. Here's what he says. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So question two, what are the consequences if Christ has been raised from the dead? Let's look at these consequences. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Friends, just let this soak into your soul. Christ, in fact, has been raised from the dead. It changes everything. It's historical fact. They found an empty tomb. They never found a dead body. Cowardly disciples in an instant are transformed into courageous lions for the gospel. How does that happen? They saw the resurrected Lord, an empty tomb, no dead body, lives transformed from cowards to courageous. He appeared in his resurrection body to hundreds and hundreds of people. They talked with him. They held his hand. They ate with him. He showed them his scars. Credible eyewitness testimony recorded down on parchment and passed on for people to believe through the generations. That's how history is recorded and passed on. How do you know that George Washington was, in fact, the first president of the United States? Did you see him? No, you didn't, and I didn't either. But someone did, some credible eyewitness did, and they wrote it down and passed it along some 250 years later, and we're believing it today. It's the same with Christ. You just got to rewind another 1,750 years. Someone saw him. They wrote it down. They were credible. It was vetted and tested, and it just kept being passed down and passed down 2,000 years later. That's how we believe. Credible eyewitness testimony. That's how history is recorded. It is fact. Fact, not fiction. And because he was raised from the dead, all Christians will one day be raised from the dead. This is what Paul means by talking of a first fruits. He says Jesus is the first fruits. What does he mean? He's the first of a harvest of many more to come. So the first fruits is this agricultural image. If you're a farmer, you're awaiting those first fruits. You've worked so hard. You've tended those seeds. You've watered them. Now the first fruit is budding, and you're joyful. Your life's dependent upon it. Your livelihood's hinged to it. And you see the first fruits. And it's a picture of what is to come, more fruit to come. And so Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, the first of many, many more to come. Who are the many, many more? Those who trust in Christ will too be raised in a bodily form, imperishable, glorified body. He's the first fruits. This is what we all await. This is the hope we have in Christ, future life with him in a body that is not susceptible to sin, sickness, suffering. This is the hope of the resurrection. 
So the first consequence that flows from the fact that Christ was raised from the dead is that he paved a way for all Christians to be raised from the dead. He goes on to say in verses 21, 22, For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is the same line of thinking that he held out in Romans chapter 5. Paul draws this, this stark comp comparison or contrast between two historical men, Adam and Jesus, who serve as representatives for people who walk in those ways. So all people have gone the way of Adam. That is the way of sinfulness and destruction. But here's the good news. There's another way. There's another man. There's a better way. The way of righteousness and eternal life for those who walk by faith in the way of Jesus Christ. There is another way that Christ has paved for all those who are in Christ, belonging to Christ. How do you belong to Christ? How do you become in Christ? It's by faith. When you trust in Jesus, you belong to him. You are in Christ. And nothing can separate you. That passage that Christian just read right before my sermon, nothing can separate you. Death, life, demons, angels, rulers, nothing can separate those who are in Christ. It's an inseparable union by faith, by faith. That's what it is to walk in his ways, is to trust him. You belong to him. You're inseparably united to him. Not even death can disrupt it. As you reflect on this passage, a, a helpful question to ask, am I in Christ? Do I belong to Jesus? Do I trust in Christ? Paul maps out two very different ways, pathways, destinations at the end of that pathway. Death for those who continue in the way of Adam, life for those who continue in the way of Jesus. What will it be? There's two ways to live. Will we trust in Christ or will we continue in the way of Adam? Follow the path of Christ that leads to life eternal. We find another hopeful consequence that stems from the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead. Notice how Paul talks about death in this passage. He uses a figure of sleep, figure of speech, falling asleep is what he says. This is how the early Christians referred to death after hearing and believing in the resurrection of Jesus. They used a figure of speech. It's just like falling asleep, taking a slumber to be woken again to eternal life. This was radical for that day because like in our day people had fear and trepidation over the reality of death but once christ conquered death through his resurrection it changed they could talk about it as falling asleep you take a little nap you're gonna wake up again and so it is with those who sleep in christ you're, you're gonna wake again to eternal bliss they begin to talk about it as falling asleep for a christian death is nothing more than a momentary slumber only to awake in the very presence of Jesus. Beauty, joy, satisfaction, eternal life with him. So can I ask you, how do you view death? Are you afraid to die? 
I've thought about this question a lot this week. Am I ready to meet my maker? The Bible says our lives are but a vapor here one day and gone the next. We are not guaranteed the next day. But we falsely assume that the next day is just going to roll out. And, and I think the message of Christianity is, are you ready? Am I ready to meet my maker? According to scripture, death is gain. Departing from this life and being with Christ is far better, Paul says. I don't know all the details. The scripture doesn't lay out all the details, but here's what the scripture says about those who die in Christ. Paul says, Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, I desire to depart and be with Christ. When our lives expire in this life, immediately we're with Christ. Your body dies, yes, your soul is immediately with Jesus, in an instant, in a flash. Paul says, I desire to depart and be with Christ. Aaron Gray is with Jesus Christ now in his arms. Jesus says to the thief on the cross who trusts him in his final hour, the clock is ticking on this guy, and in his last moments, he looks to Christ in faith. And what does Jesus say to that criminal turned saint in an instant? Today, my son, you'll be with me in paradise. Aaron Gray, now, as we labor and as we suffer, He's in paradise with the Lord Jesus. And he awaits his resurrection body that is coming for all to believe. So our spirits, our souls immediately go with Jesus and we wait and we wait for the resurrection body that comes when Christ returns again and just doles out those resurrection bodies. It's body 2.0. It cannot be, it can't suffer. It doesn't get sick. You're not susceptible to that old sin that you keep going back to. It's body 2.0. There's nothing like it. Christ was a first fruit of it. First Corinthians 15:52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the last trumpet is the sound of Christ's return. You will know that Christ is coming when you hear a blast of a trumpet that you've never heard before. Blaring out cosmically, that's it. The Lord Jesus is coming. At the sound of the last trumpet, the dead will be raised imperishable. We shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. Friends, let this comfort you as you consider death. Let it comfort us as we consider Aaron Gray's death. He is with the Lord Jesus now, awaiting a glorified body that Christ will bring when he returns. One final hope-filled consequence that stems from Christ's resurrection from the dead. We read in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Now let's take the reverse of that. If Christ has been raised, then you are no longer bound to your sins. If Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, sin no longer has ultimate reigning authority over us. Christ's resurrection has broken the bonds and fetters and shackles of your sin. Do you believe that? 
I'm convinced that one of the reasons you and I continue in habitual sin is that we've lost sight of resurrection power made available to us in Christ. The Bible says that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has broken the back and the power of sin. Do you think about the resurrection in the hour of temptation? When you're tempted to look or to gossip or to covet, think about this. Jesus Christ died for this very sin that I'm on the precipice of committing. And he rose from the grave to remove my shackles from it. Think of the resurrection power in the hour of temptation. If Christ has been raised from the dead, then you are no longer permanently bound to it. You may battle with sin, but you're no longer bound to sin. Sin no longer has mastery over you. Christ does. So remember the resurrection in the hour of your temptation. His resurrection power resides in you who believe in him. It is your master, not sin. Don't believe the lie. In this passage, we've traced the hopeless chain of consequence if there is no resurrection. Then we've marvelously transitioned to the hopeful set of consequences if there is a resurrection from the dead. Thirdly and finally, how is it possible for Christ to destroy the enemy of death? How is it possible for Christ to destroy the enemy of death? Well, Paul tells us in verses 26 and 27, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So it is possible for Christ to destroy death because God the Father has given God the Son the authority to do so. Christ has rightful authority to destroy death. Verse 27, God the Father has put all things in subjection under his, God the Son's, feet. Paul is quoting Psalm 8, verse 6, and he's alluding to Psalm 110, verse 1, which are these marvelous psalms that picture the authority given to the Messiah all authority in heaven and on earth given to the Messiah. Jesus conquers death because God the Father gave him the authority to do so. Jesus holds ultimate authority over all our enemies, sin, Satan, sickness, suffering, demonic servants, our flesh, and the last enemy is death. Christ rules over all of the above and at the appointed time, he will systematically defeat each and every one of them. Friends, Jesus Christ's ultimate victory over all of his enemies is not up for grabs. It's not 50-50. It is sure and certain. Being on the side of Jesus is not like going to your favorite sporting event and wringing your hands nervously over the home team, your team winning. It's not like that. On Monday night, the Celtics are going to play game five. The series is tied 2-2. You have to win four to win the series. I mean, I would say it's 50-50. I'm hoping the Celtics are going to win, but at best, it's 50-50. Brothers and sisters, when Jesus Christ steps onto the court, it's not 50-50. It's done. The game is over. It is sure and certain. Look how... Paul describes Christ's reigning authority in verse 25, for he must reign. His ultimate victory is not up for grabs. It is his at the appointed time. It's going to happen. It's sure and certain. He must reign. You don't have to look at the future 
and think, gee, I hope the Lord can handle this one. The scripture says the Lord must handle it, will handle it. You can take it to the bank. The victory is sure and certain. Christ's reign is going to happen. His victory will unfold. Here's an assignment to you, for you, that's going to help you consider the victory we have in Christ. Here's an assignment. Tonight, take your Bible and open up to Revelation chapter 20 and read verses 7 through 10. Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. This is Jesus Christ's ultimate reign and victory over all his enemies. It is the cosmic battle of Armageddon. Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. In that passage, you see the stage is set. The saints of God on one side. The servants of Satan on the other side. And the reader is anticipating this great showdown, this great battle. And the servants of Satan make their advance against the saints of God. And, and you're reading and, you, and, and you're wondering what's going to happen. This is going to be a bloodbath. It's going to be a long, drawn-out battle. And in a half of a verse, it's all over. The Lord breathes fire down from heaven in a half of a verse, vanquishing all of his enemies, Satan and his servants. It's over in a half of a verse. If the battle of Armageddon was a major motion picture, you would demand your money back. Before you put the second handful of popcorn in your mouth, it's over. You're walking out. Credits are going. It's over. Christ's victory is sure. Fire comes from heaven, vanquishes all of his enemies enemies. The Lord's victory is certain. It will be decisive, swift, and sure. Every enemy will be vanquished, and the last enemy, Paul says, to be destroyed is death. After he's conquered every other enemy, he will give resurrection bodies to all who belong to him by faith. We will be raised, inhabiting these imperishable, incorruptible, glorified bodies forever to be in them in the presence of our Savior. Death will be destroyed, and Christ will sit at the right hand of the Father, having faithfully carried out his conquering work over all his enemies. Death, the last enemy, will be swallowed up in victory. Thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your power that is unparalleled. We thank you that you've given power to your son to vanquish death, evil, sickness, sin, suffering. All enemies will come in subjection to you. Thank you for the glorious gospel, your perfect life, sacrificial death, and triumphant resurrection. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit that takes that gospel and applies it to our hearts we confess we need you, O oh Spirit, to comfort us and to counsel us and to help us to believe in these difficult days. Thank you for your grace, Lord, even in this morning. Thank you so much for the Gray family. Thank you for the living witness, the legacy of faith that exists in this dear family because of the leadership of your faithful servant, Aaron. Comfort them, encourage them with the hope and the reality of the resurrection. And Lord, I pray for our friend Allie. Lord, that you would watch over her now as she's treated. God, keep her safe. Keep her precious baby safe. 
God, thank you for your care in our lives and for your word that sustains us. In Jesus' name, amen.